The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 16. Let's see, associate pastors were contemplating a new series. We were discussing this with Dr. Rogers, and he had to admit that the person and work of Elijah was one of the most major characters. He had, had never done a preaching series through and was uh, very supportive of our efforts to cover uh, this important figure in the Old Testament. So we're going to cover a portion from 1 Kings 16, which is mostly about uh, the evil king reigned at the time, and then we'll look at some commentary from James chapter 5. And uh, you'll see as this passage opens, it introduces us to the most evil king in Israel's history, and that the sudden appearance, almost out of nowhere, God raises up Elijah, the prophet, and God, through him, preserves his remnant and protects his people from an onslaught of evil. Now, in the Old Testament, there is no mention of Elijah praying, uh, but the fruits of his prayers are evident. And Elijah is Exhibit A uh, from the Apostle James's message that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Please follow as I read 1 Kings 16, beginning in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah... Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Now, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elisha, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And then skipping over to James chapter 5. James, the brother of Jesus, has this to say. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, I would ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, the story of the Bible is largely a great epic battle between great evil and righteousness. The choice of our first parents was a battle between the good and the bad. God raised up Noah, who preached to an evil generation as he built a great ark in condemnation and preparation for the great judgment of the flood. Moses stood against Pharaoh and his cronies and pronounced judgment upon the false gods of Egypt as God brought about a great deliverance of Israel out of the house of bondage. David, standing up against Goliath and the hordes of the Philistines once more, the great act of righteousness against great evil. The Bible is filled with stories of the righteous being greatly outnumbered, outgunned by the evil hordes. And when all appears hopeless, God takes action to provide a great and mighty deliverance, raising up his servants, weak men, who stand in the righteousness of God against great evil. And so this theme continues in the story of Elijah. There was great evil in his day, like the floodwaters sweeping destruction across the great city of Houston. Baal worship was spreading and and leaking sewage, polluting the land of God's dwelling. Nothing could stop it. But God raises up Elijah like a wall, like a a dike against the flood. He is a righteous man, as Scripture testifies, a man of prayer, of great faith, with zeal for righteousness, who helps turn the tide against the great hordes of evil. The Bible declares that God honors those who honor him. God hears and answers the prayers of the righteous, for God knows how to deliver his people out of trouble. But it's in the person of Elijah we see a great foreshadowing of the one true righteous one whose deeds and prayers God used to defeat evil once and for all and to provide eternal salvation for his people. Through the story of Elijah, we are reminded that the righteous run to the strong tower of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ in the day of trouble. And until his great return, we wait upon the Lord. But as we begin this series on the story of Elijah, we want to consider what does it mean to pray in righteousness? What does it mean and and how do we pray for our rulers when rulers are evil, when they are Unjust. How do we pray for a world that is under God's judgment? And and how do we pray when we know that our own hearts are tainted with evil? These are the three questions we want to ask as we consider these passages. 
Now, our, our passage opens up with this stirring proclamation that, that the king Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil than all the kings that had gone before him. That's quite the mark. That's quite the reputation because there were many wicked kings to compare him with. And it says here that he wasn't, it, he wasn't content merely to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. You recall the first king of Israel who rebelled against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and set up the golden calves for the northern tribes to worship. So what was it that was so great and hideous and evil about Ahab? Well, two words. Jezebel and Baal. He married the queen Jezebel, the princess of the Phoenicians, the Sidonians, who was a high priestess of the, of the false god Baal. Now, in making this alliance between Israel and the Sidonians, it, it was a sign of great prosperity. Notice that Ahab ruled for 22 years, and they were, in, they were in partnership with a great trading empire. This was a time of prosperity and wealth and uh, people living fancy-free. The economy was booming. And there was no lack of material things, and yet the days were evil. Ahab's wife Jezebel was provocative in one of the greatest examples of evil in the Bible, who disdained the righteous, who slaughtered the prophets of God, who is, her name is used to apply an evil figure in Revelation chapter 2. No one in their right mind would ever name their daughter Jezebel. Secondly, Ahab's reign was marked by Baal worship the worship of the false god of, of fertility, the, the storm god. And the text indicates that Baal worship was even worse than what the first king of Israel had done with having the people bow down to uh, bulls. And Jezebel, the queen, the, the pr- princess of the Sidonians, she was not content to merely worship Baal in private. She did not just come into Israel and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't satisfactory for Ahab to build her a private temple to worship Baal. No, this would be the new order of things. She would slaughter the prophets of God and the priest and would institute complete government-sanctioned Baal worship. She was like the evangelist, the propagandist of Baal worship, zealously promoting it throughout Israel. And there's other text that we'll get to in weeks to come that that in many ways Jezebel wore the pants in the relationship. She would often incite Ahab to great evil things as she slaughtered the Lord's prophets, as she incited her husband in striking down the righteous man Naboth merely to steal his vineyard. Now the passage in chapter 16 ends with a reference to a man named Hiel the Bethelite, who at the cost of his firstborn and his youngest son rebuilds Jericho. And he suffers the judgment of God in fulfillment of the prophecy Joshua had made many generations before that. And we don't know Hiel, if he was a good man or an evil man, but he was working and serving under the administration of Ahab it's very likely that he rebuilt Jericho directed by the king himself. 
And this open defiance of God's word comes to typify Ahab's reign. And one of his subjects suffers greatly under his evil administration. Perhaps some of you heard the the sad story coming out of Houston two weeks ago during the floods. The story of the Salvador family, an immigrant family, multi-generational family in which seven of them were crying across a bridge uh, on the green bayou and made a a judgment, uh, an act of poor judgment by driving into water, only how the waters carry the van over into the bayou. And the driver, one of the uncles of the young children, was the lone survivor as he watched his parents and his nieces and nephews drown in a terrible flood accident. It's a parent's worst nightmare. This is the the sad consequence of living in an evil world of brokenness and fallenness. How do we pray? Where do we find consolation when we suffer the consequences of living in such a broken, fallen world? Well, Elijah and the Testament of Scripture would direct us that our only consolation comes from the fact that God reigns, that he reigns and he will triumph over evil even when we have evil rulers and still live in an evil, sin-tainted world. In chapter 17, verse 1, God gives his response to the proliferation of Baal worship. He raises up Elijah the prophet, the prophet from Tishbe. We know very little about him other than his stance and his pronouncement of judgment upon God's people. And he judges the fertility God Baal's ability to provide rain. Life without rain is hard It brings thirst, drought, famine, the the requirement to ration drinking and bathing water. You've perhaps heard stories of sailors adrift at sea, surrounded by water everywhere, but not able to drink it. Many peoples in Houston and the floodwaters found water all around them, but unable to drink any of it, being tainted by pollution. And we don't know much about Elijah, about his story, his background before he was called, but he was called as a prophet whose calling was to comp- call and compel God's people back to the covenant, to renounce their idolatry, to return and restore worship of the living God. God had warned through Moses in Deuteronomy 11 that if Israel worshipped other gods, he would shut up the heavens so that there would be no rain and the ground would not yield its fruit. Elijah maintains a very high reputation of the testimony of Scripture. He's one of only two figures that we know of who did not face death or were taken directly into heaven, the other Enoch. Jesus refers to John the Baptist as the second Elijah. We find Elijah appearing with Moses at Jesus' transfiguration in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And this Elijah is called by God to contend with Ahab, to stare down an evil ruler. He calls, and he prays for and even against a wicked king. The testimony of 1 Kings 21 says this about Ahab, that there was no one who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. 
whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols. Well, how does a believer pray when governed by unjust rulers, when the rulers of the land disrespect the rule of law? That's been the case for most believers throughout Christian history of living under injustice, living in times of persecution. But we see from Elijah an example of prayer, standing firm, recognizing that God is the ultimate ruler of heaven and earth. About this, this time last year, you may recall that Franklin Graham was leading a prayer campaign visiting all 50 U.S. capitals, and there was a group from our church that wanted to go to Harrisburg and join the rally, and they invited me to come, and I thought, oh, I'm so busy, i got so much to do, I don't have the time for this, but I decided to go and was deeply blessed by the experience. Just being challenged there in the presence of some 8,000 that gathered to pray and to hear a message from God's word, and just a time of fervent prayer for our nation. I don't think you would disagree with me that our nation in many ways is in perilous times. These are evil days. There are growing currents of unbelief, rising floodwaters of rebellion against God's good order, threats to our freedom to worship as God would direct us from his word. And at this rally, I was awakened in a fresh way to my, my need to pray fervently for our rulers. And reminded that we can and must pray for God to change the hearts of our rulers. We may even pray boldly for God to remove evil rulers and reestablish those who respect and uphold the rule of law. But we're also called, I believe, to pray, for, pray to God to protect the weak and the vulnerable, those who will suffer the most from the injustice instituted by government rulers. You know, I think there's many things that in our day we deem impossible. Perhaps we deem it's impossible to ever end abortion. Perhaps we might think that we may never get everyone off of welfare. That we might never end racism. That we will never completely eliminate sex trafficking. We'll never see a vibrant, Bible-believing church in every community across our nation or among every people group across the world. The history of God's church is instructive. When William Wilberforce entered Parliament in 1780, you could count on one hand the number of evangelical Christians in the British Parliament. But by the end of his life, some 30-plus years later, there were over 200 evangelical Christians in the British Parliament. God can change the hearts of the rulers. And just as the British abolished the evil of slavery in their day, God can abolish the many evils we find in our day. We must not cower. We must not give in to despair. We must not give up hope. We must not weaken our knees in prayer. We must remain steadfast, zealous for God's righteousness in evil days. 
And yes, it can be overwhelming when we consider all the things that we ought to pray for. I mean, I mean, where do we begin? There are so many things that are broken, that are wrong, that are flawed, that need fixing. Where do we start? I recommend we start small. Pray for just a few focused things that you deeply care about. That you go to God in earnest, fervent, vibrant prayer. That you gather a like-minded people around you to pray. That you teach and train others, children, how to pray and help raise up prayer warriors among the rising generation. I love the way Elijah introduces himself to Ahab in chapter 17, verse 1. He comes in the name of the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, who lives before whom I stand. There's a key there for understanding Elijah's boldness to stand before Ahab when one has stood in the presence of God. He can stand in the presence of a puny, wicked, evil king. You saw Moses stand before Pharaoh after he had stood, actually bowed before God at the burning bush. And it's before Ahab that, that Elijah boldly predicts a three-and-a-half-year drought. Can you imagine? Three-and-a-half years without rain. We can imagine the people scoffing and mocking and laughing and ridiculing Elijah, no rain? Are you kidding me? For three and a half years? As in the days of Noah, when he predicted 40 days, a constant, or actually more than 40 days, of many, many days of rain, night and day, to flood the earth. A great judgment of God is coming. But notice it's not just rain. Elijah also predicts there will be no dew. There will be no morning moisture to help saturate the ground. This will be a three-and-a-half-year drought that is bone dry, where nothing would grow. No relief, a pronouncement of God's judgment upon his rebellious, idolatrous people. The Baal fertility God, the storm God, the God who sent the rain was under judgment. According to Canaanite mythology, Lady Asherah thanked Ale, the great god, for permitting Baal to have a palace and praises Baal for bringing the rainy season and with the sound of his voice in the clouds, he flashes lightning on the earth. Ahab and Israel would now see what the god Baal truly is. And if he cannot deliver in his area of expertise his reputation would greatly suffer. So the government in Elijah's day was pumping raw paganism like sewage into the water system of Israel. It looks like Baalism would win the day, extinguishing Yahweh's remnant. But then with the sudden appearance of Elijah, during this great day of evil, we are reminded that God is always prepared to combat evil, to spread his kingdom, to uphold and strengthen his church when he chooses to act. God can raise men up in his service from anywhere. And so Elijah prayed for the heavens, not to release rain, and it was dry for three and a half years, and then he prayed again, and the floodgates were released. 
So how do we pray for a world that is under God's judgment? No doubt there were many people in Houston praying for the rain to stop, but it continued, and it continued for day after day to the excess of 50 inches of rain. My, my parents in northwest Houston got close to 50 inches of rain. Thankfully, they were spared, but had many friends that had to evacuate. 17 family members in their church uh, got flooded out. The elementary school that I attended as a child had two foot of water in it. But you may have heard stories about how there were communities around Houston that were protected from the flood for a time by, by a dike system. But then as the water kept rising and put the dike system in danger of bursting, the authorities, in order to relieve the pressure, had to allow some flooding to take place. And of course, the authorities have to inform the residents and Some of the residents wisely left their homes, but others stayed defiant. And he pleaded with the authorities not to open the dike, hanging on to wishful thinking that somehow the water would just go away. But of course, the authorities could not comply with this request. It would be irresponsible, posing an even greater danger to the residents. And in one act, they had to cut off the electricity. Uh, to prevail upon these residents to get out of their homes to prepare for the coming floodwaters. What a great picture of issuing a warning of the coming judgment that, that there, there is a, a brief time when you can get out and get out of the coming path of the flood to come and the wise heed it and the wise run to safety. But the foolish remain and in their stubbornness suffer the judgment to come. Those who ignore God and his judgment to come, who despise the offer of salvation, are like the people I heard about two weeks ago who were trapped on the second floor of their homes with the water levels covering the whole first story and rescue boats were coming along and offering them rescue during the daytime. And some of these families said, no, go on, go ahead, we're fine. But then during the darkness of night, when horror and terror struck them, they would call for help. But of course, in the nighttime, the emergency responders could not come to their aid. It was too dangerous. With cars underwater, with fallen trees and lampposts and street signs, they would not put the rescue responders' lives at, at risk to perform a nighttime rescue. Another reminder that there comes a time when it is too late to be rescued. From the pending judgment, the time to act is now. The time to issue a warning is now. And friends, you and I have a calling to be spokesmen of the judgment to come. By our witness, by our prayers. But sadly, like stubborn residents in line in the pathway of a coming storm or a great flood, Many people who profess faith can pray demand, in a demanding posture that somehow God will bend his will to accommodate our desires. And there are those who might pray for salvation, not on God's term, but on their own terms. But we cannot bargain with God. We cannot impose our will upon the eternal will of God. God's existence and his goodness is not on trial based upon whether or not we get our way in prayer. We live in an evil world. We and God's people are not immune to grave consequences to the reality of a fallen world. 
Some people are not ready to face the fact of a terrible diagnosis. Some are not ready to face the fact that a loved one may be called home. And we pray and insist that God must heal and revive us even when the professionals insist that no more treatment is recommended. So we pray and we struggle to conform our hearts and our desires to the will of God to recognize we live in evil days. We can pray for and even against rulers. We can pray for a world under judgment which is filled with much evil. But as we do this, may we not neglect to pray with full recognition that our own hearts are evil. How do we do that? How do we pray to a holy and righteous God when we know there is evil and there is false motive in our own hearts? And the Bible declares that you and I are righteous by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That we have an alien righteousness secured by the work, the faithful work, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at Elijah, as James chapter 5 makes adds commentary, that, that Elijah prayed, and how did he pray? He prayed fervently. And it's clear from James 5.16 that God does use the prayers of the righteous to accomplish much. Our prayers are the means by which God hears confession and offers forgiveness, hears the pleas of his people and offers healing. He hears the appeals of those burdened for the lost. He opens the eyes and the hearts of those who need salvation in Jesus Christ. The righteous have a holy calling to intercede for family, for friends, for our schools, for businesses, for local and national leaders. Our Great Commission Committee, our Missions Committee, gets all kinds of requests from missionaries that are seeking financial support. And we are a church that's been blessed with a lot of resources. It's our privilege to help fund a lot of good kingdom work. But what I, I'm so pleased with, with most of our missionaries, that in their appeals, they are earnestly asking for prayer. More than they are asking for money. In fact, we're, during, we're in our annual review time. We have reports from all of our missionaries, and almost every single one of them includes some kind of earnest appeal and plea for prayer. Effective ministry does not happen without fervent and faithful prayer. The scriptures tell us that Elijah was a righteous man who feared, who obeyed God. He stood up to Ahab, to Queen Jezebel. Through him, God toppled the prophets of Baal. He healed hurting people. He raised the dead. Elijah was righteous, and he was in a right relationship with God, but we know he was a sinner. Read what James says in chapter 5, verse 17. He says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a fallen man. He was a broken man, tainted by the sin nature we inherit from Adam. And we are not to exalt him or any other figure in Scripture except the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah was no superior saint. He certainly is worthy to be admired. He has, his example is commendable. But notice two things we'll see in the series ahead. Elijah was given to fear. After the great triumph over the prophets 
of the Baal in the, in the coming chapters, as soon as he hears the judgment of Queen Jezebel, that she's coming after him, Elijah runs in terror. He is absolutely terrified of this evil, wicked woman. And you hear him crying out to God that he is no better than his father's. He asks God to take his life. He is so low and so depressed, he has a death wish. Elijah was also given to self-pity. Later on, he cries out to God in proclaiming all the righteous deeds he has done and declared that there was nobody left. In all of his zeal for God, look what I have done. And all he gets is death threats from a wicked queen. Elijah's weakness and frailty reveal very vividly that he needed another's righteousness. And what Elijah was lacking, what you and I are lacking, is what Jesus provided, giving us an alien righteousness. Jesus alone prayed with a truly righteous heart. Even on the night he was betrayed, when his disciples failed him, when they could not stay up with him and pray with him, their spirit willing, but their flesh was weak. Jesus, even when he knew the Jews would betray him, when his disciples would fail and fall away, when he would be handed over to evil men, be subjected to a mock trial, to be tortured unto death by crucifixion on a Roman cross, and even more ghastly would bear the sin of the world. Drink to the dregs the holy wrath of Almighty God. And yet, Jesus prays. He prays for his disciples. He prays for the followers that would come after them. He prays that we would stand firm. He prays that we would be zealous for righteousness, that we would hold fast against great and evil days. And he prays that the Father would be so good to give us the Holy Spirit, to enable us to stand in evil days, to spread the gospel message. And Jesus, even now, is at the Father's right hand interceding for us. This is the true prayer of righteousness. It enables you and I to come before a holy God. Though tainted by our sin, we come in the righteousness of God, and he hears our prayers. As we learn to humble ourselves and repent, we boldly come into the presence of God. Hears us. God hears us not in our unrighteousness, but in the righteousness of his Son, who is the true King of kings and Lord of lords, who rules over this great evil world, in fact, who has already overcome the world. He cleanses, us, cleanses our hearts by his own righteous blood. And it's in Jesus we can have confidence, according to Hebrews 4.16, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. We come in the confidence given to us by the one true righteous Son of God. And so we need not be paralyzed in fear before evil days. Yes, Congress will continue to fail to act in righteousness. The Supreme Court will continue to make rulings that turn our stomach in knots. Social movements will rise up that rebel against God's good order. False prophets will continue to tell people what their itching ears want to hear. And yes, we must pray for God to restrain evil 
to overwhelm sin, that the power of the gospel would prevail across this great land and throughout the world. But as we go, as we stand, as we pray, remember that Christ has triumphed over Baal. That you and I are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And we stand indeed in the righteousness of the one who laid down his life for us, who prayed for us, who prays for us even now, that we may come before the Father in his righteousness and pray. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for giving us your Son, the one true righteous one, through whom we may stand and come to you with all kinds of pleas, with all kinds of appeals and requests, and we know that you hear us and that you answer them according to your perfect will for us in Christ Jesus. I pray that you give us great power and strength to stand in evil days. As we come to the Lord's table together, we pray that you administer to our hearts, strengthen us with this meal, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.